Hello and welcome to the Emergency Medicine Journal podcast for September 2023. I'm Rick Boddy. And I'm Sarah Edwards. We've got a usual feast of papers to cover for you today. And very excitingly, we're going to have an interview with an author of the Editor's Choice paper coming up. So listen out for that very shortly. But before we get to the interview, we're going to go through some of the other great papers in the EMJ this month. And we're going to start with a qualitative study looking at emergency department staff views of NHS 111. Yeah, so it's great to see increasingly uh, within the Emergency Medicine Journal more qualitative work being published. And I think it is a challenging way to do research, but it's great that we've had more and more papers of this nature coming into the journal. So this paper is titled Emergency Department Staff Views of NHS 111 First Qualitative Interview Study in England. And the lead author is Jennifer Mc. Lellen. And so, in true qualitative style, they uh, did semi-structured interviews um, using 27 participants. And this paper was looking at the end of 2020 when the NHS 111 first programme was initiated to support social distancing and control of ED attendances during the COVID-19 pandemic. Basically, if you remember way back when, into 2020, the idea was that no one should attend the hospital without having spoken to 111 first. And this is where the idea came from. And we wanted to understand in this paper how good this service was. And essentially what would happen is patients would ring 111 first, they would be booked into the emergency department, and then they would turn up to the emergency department. And this paper really wanted to understand staff from doctors and nurses and senior management and even receptionists' views of what happened. 27 people were recruited, 10 nurses, 9 doctors and 8 administrative and managers staff working in the emergency departments or the urgent care centres that were serving areas with high deprivation and those who had a mixed socio-demographic profiles. So this paper came out with a couple of themes, really, about potential issues of this service. The first, not issue, but the one of the first themes was first was additional to local streaming practices. So the theme was around how the NHS 111 first triaging fitted within local streaming practices and the second was triage was not seen as a substitute for clinical acumen. So one of the issues that was identified and came up in a variety of different ways was that often the emergency departments had pre-existing local triage and assessment systems to prioritise attendance and what was happening was that booked patients that were coming by via 111 first were expecting to be seen at a particular time, not realising actually that they were just being put into whatever the queue was to be seen and getting re-triaged at the front desk. One of the quotes from the paper were, the streaming nurse who sits at the front desk will do the same job if they have referred or not referred, have an appointment or not. They have to still queue, they have to still wait and still be seen by the same person. So really about that actually 
whether they were calling up 111 first or turning up at the emergency department, it didn't really change a huge amount about the experience because people were just getting seen in the way that they were. 111 were able to book you an appointment, so to speak, in A&E, if you turned up in between those times, you would get seen. And I think that caused a bit of confusion with the patients as well because I think they thought they were coming to see doctor at 10 o'clock, for example, and that they would be seen straight away, and that wasn't the case. And again, that quote really highlighting actually the forward thinking and the forward practice and the realities were not there. People weren't really understanding that actually you were just being put into the same queue, whether you'd rang up or not rang up. And the other one, again, is about sort of clinical acumen. So triage was not seen as a substitute for clinical acumen, this second theme. Participants expressed concerns around remote telephone and online triaging and assessment. They described that often that their own clinical decision making was guided by context specific, complex, flexible and interpretive knowledge. They felt this was best gathered directly from the patient, ideally by a clinician in a face to face consultation. One of the quotes that I just want to say from the paper is, it is because the biggest flaw of 111 is you are never going to provide decent healthcare unless you can sit the patient in front of you, put your hands on and see what is going on. And I think this is one of the challenges that perhaps a lot of our listeners can relate to, to any of these types of services, whether it's 111 or whether it's a similar service elsewhere in the world, is that Patients are complex and sometimes the telephone triaging isn't as ideal as we would hope. I was interested to see what you thought, Rick, about this paper. Well, I think this paper gives us really valuable insights into this service. I kind of had a feeling that these findings might have been true. I guess it's a bit unrealistic to expect that we could have a stream of patients phoning ahead and being offered an appointment time and they're getting mixed in to the same queue with people who are attending without phoning ahead and that's an unpredictable work stream. So how on earth could you possibly plan an appointment time when you've got this massive unpredictable work stream coming through at the same time? In other countries like Denmark, for example, you can't walk into an emergency department unless you've phoned ahead and maybe if we really want to manage our workflow and book appointments, that's the sort of system that we would need to implement in the UK. You have to phone ahead if you're going to work into an emergency department. It seems to me, in my very humble opinion, that if we want that system to work where we book patients' appointments and cut down the waiting time, that we would have to implement such a system. And just out of interest, what happens if you're having a cardiac arrest? You can arrive by ambulance. Oh, okay. So it's well, And you've got a telephone for an ambulance invariably so i suppose it's all telephone triaged it's just whether it's an ambulance or whether you walk there i guess is that is that how it works exactly so if you're fit enough to call ahead they you know if you, you can be triaged by from the telephone to get an emergency ambulance of course or you can be signposted to alternative services but you can't just walk in without some form of prior contact so rick you've got a paper on a similar sort of theme but this time about the four-hour target yeah so this is a before and after retrospective observational study from a single mystery emergency department in the in England. It's not been disclosed. So this was part of a 14 emergency department pilot where the four-hour target was going to be scrapped. If you're from outside the UK, 
you may have heard of the UK four-hour target for quite a number of years. We had a target that uh, originally over 95% of patients needed to be processed through the emergency department within four hours of the time of arrival. So they had to be either admitted, discharged, or transferred within four hours of arrival. And the performance of emergency departments was measured against that target. In this pilot, that four-hour target was scrapped. And they studied the impact of scrapping that four-hour target using an interrupted time series model. Now, that's important because if you just do before and after study, you might be studying trends. The waiting time might be getting longer over time. It wouldn't be fair to conclude that scrapping the four-hour target increases waiting time because it was increasing anyway. The interrupted time series method takes account of that and sees if there's a sudden inflection in the rate of the increase in waiting time. What they found was quite interesting. So there was a benefit in that there was a reduction in short-stay hospital admissions when the four-hour target was scrapped. So you can see that because if you've got a four-hour target, you might think, oh, well, I've got to make a decision quickly. I'm not going to send them home. I've got to admit them because I'm not a bit not certain. So you admit patients even though you didn't need to. However, the length of stay for all patients in the emergency department went up during that time. So although you're reducing the number of short-stay hospital admissions, your patients in the ED are waiting longer on average. So it went up from an average of 222 minutes to an estimated 262 minutes. And that's a quite significant quid pro quo, I'd say, which would contribute to crowding. The four-hour target was introduced to help reduce crowding and exit block. And it seems that scrapping it does just what you'd expect. It increases crowding. What did you think, Sarah? I'm not surprised, if I'm honest. I think it's a balance, though. So the four-hour target, I remember when it brought in, it really focused hospitals, I found, to really tackle the problem, not just from the emergency department, but through the whole hospital process. And Emergency medicine in the UK, like lots of other places in the world at the moment, is now suffering from where, you know, people are in the emergency department for a long, long time. And I think removing a target, whether you love it or hate it, such as the four hour target, it's not a surprise that people then are spending longer. And I, you know, I think getting rid of the four hour target is probably not a great idea for lots of reasons. But I think what it did was that it focused people's minds to try and drive people through the hospital. And it's not just an ED thing, it's it's the flow through the hospital. And it's really nice, again, a bit like the previous paper, that this research is showing us what we thought was going to happen. And hopefully it can influence policy. Absolutely. So love it or hate it, the four-hour target did at least seem to be helping us to address crowding. We don't want a target. We want no exit block. That's essentially what we want. But we've got to think of a new way of making that happen now that we've not got a four-hour target. Moving on, Sarah, you've taken a look at a systematic review of isopropyl alcohol for reducing nausea and vomiting in the emergency department. This is a really simple treatment that we could use to reduce nausea and vomiting, but does it actually work? 
Well, this paper made me very excited when I uh, saw that it had come into the journal. It's isopropyl alcohol inhalation for the treatment of nausea in adult emergency department patients, a systematic review and meta-analysis. And the lead author is Stephanie Lee. And why this made my my self really, really happy about this topic is that I remember one of my colleagues, Dr. Fion Davis, who's now currently the uh, International Federation of Emergency Medicine President, many, many years ago, sharing a story to me about her use of alcohol wipes for her husband, Professor Tim Coates, who's an emergency medicine consultant as well. And she shared that very openly at the time on social media and continues to share that to this day. And it was really lovely to see the systematic review and meta-analysis looking at this because she swore by it and it really helped Tim's nausea that he was having for whatever reason. So this systematic review and meta-analysis were conducted in a standard way that you would expect. And they found two trials looking at this as a modality for nausea in the adult emergency department. They unfortunately found, which is not a surprise with two papers, that you know some of the studies were judged to be low or unclear risk of bias. And there were a few papers that they would like to have included, but they were comparing with things such as ondansetron and, and, and various other things. What they found when they pooled the mean difference for the primary analysis was a reduction in reported nausea of 2.18 on a 0 to 10 scale with a 95% confidence interval of 1.6 to 2.76, favouring isopropyl alcohol, so IPA, over the placebo with a minimum clinically significant difference being defined as 1.5. Whilst the evidence itself was graded as moderate due to imprecision and low patient numbers, overall, this systematic review and meta-analysis was generally positive to suggest that IPA inhalation for the treatment of nausea in adults can be useful. But obviously, not a surprise, more studies need to happen. I don't know what you thought there, Rick. I acknowledge they conclude that more evidence is needed, but this is such a simple treatment. It's non-invasive. It's hardly likely to cause a patient safety issue. And the findings are really promising. So I think this is a treatment that I would be quite happy to offer to my patients in the emergency department because it has a really good chance of reducing a very important symptom that makes people's lives a lot worse while they're with us. Absolutely. And I wanted to thank Dr. Fionn Davis and uh, Professor Coates for sharing this many, many years ago that in fact it worked. 100%. What a fantastic anecdote and what a great way to formulate a research question in emergency medicine. Okay, so for our next paper, we've got an article with possibly the greatest title we've ever had in the emergency medicine journal, in my opinion. It's, you may think that the consultants are great and they know everything, but they don't. Exploring how new emergency medicine consultants experience uncertainty. And you've taken a look at this one, Sarah. Yeah, so this paper by the lead author, Dr. Anna Collini, was a unique paper that we've had in the journal. And I agree with you, probably one of the best titles I've seen in the journal for a long, long time. And essentially, this paper was looking at newly qualified consultants within a year's worth of practice, and trying to understand their feelings of uncertainty and using a qualitative um, methodology. 
And we've been really lucky this week to catch up with the lead author, Dr. Anna Collini, and we've been able to ask some questions about the paper. So we'll let her tell us what the results were. So, Anna, um, thank you for joining us. And it's great to see your paper with, as Rick was saying, this, this amazing title. What did you actually find from this paper? And then we'll get into the nitty gritty. So I think to start with a bit of background, managing uncertainty is obviously a really important part of being a doctor. And especially in the specialty of emergency medicine with the patients that we see and the environment that we we work in. But it's often not taught explicitly. It's mainly learned through role modelling and that kind of social learning rather than explicit teaching. And I was really interested in the transition from registrar to consultant because it's relatively under-researched compared to some of the other transitions within medical education. So when I did try to find out how they experienced this uncertainty, these consultants. There were three main themes that came up. The first one was transition and performance as a source of uncertainty. So my participants really felt this uncertainty about whether they were living up to expectations and sometimes even what those expectations were as a consultant. And what really compounded this was that they really struggled to get meaningful feedback to reduce that uncertainty, which just made it worse. There was also this feeling that everyone expected certainty from them. So colleagues, particularly other specialties, junior colleagues, but also patients really wanted them to be certain or they felt that they wanted them to be certain. But actually, they knew that that's impossible because there's so much uncertainty in in medical practice. There are lots of things that are unknown and you can't be certain. That kind of feeds into the next theme, which was uncertainty and decision making as a consultant in the context of the emergency department. And consultants felt that they were experts in managing uncertainty. That was what the job of EM is, is a a main part of it is actually managing that uncertainty. I think they felt more confident about the clinical uncertainty as opposed to that uncertainty about performance in the first theme. And they had a number of strategies that they used to try and reduce that uncertainty, like gathering more information through tests, looking things up, guidelines, getting more information from patients, speaking to patients or or juniors to get more, more information. But also, and this is fits with the existing literature as well, a lot of it was about sharing uncertainty and asking for help. And that was the third main theme that, that came out. And sharing uncertainty was seen as really important for good patient care because it, it allowed you to get help and patient, the consultants felt that they had to express that uncertainty and seek help for good patient care. And it was really valued. They really liked it when uh, colleagues or particularly junior colleagues said that they didn't know what to do. But at the same time, there was this perception that that it was perhaps slightly risky to their credibility to say they weren't sure about something or they needed help. And I think that was particularly acute as a new consultant. When can I say that I need help or I'm not sure about something? But the environment that they were in really um, influenced whether that was acceptable or not to say, I don't know. 
and a feeling of psychological safety, seeing others express uncertainty and the reactions that they got to that was was really important. And so I think that psychological safety was was really important to help people express uncertainty, which is then beneficial for patient care and also role modelling to to others that it's okay to say, I don't know. Really interesting results there, Anna. And before we go in to discuss them with a bit more detail, I just really wanted to understand where your background is from and how this led to the methodology that you did for this paper. So I was an emergency medicine trainee when I started conceiving of this paper as I did a master's in medical education and this was my dissertation. But actually, during the process of that master's, I decided to leave training and I'm now a lecturer in medical education at the university. But I also had those same kind of worries about the transition to to consultant and what that was going to be like. And I was really interested to see if, if that was similar and people just weren't really talking about it or whether it was just me and my anxieties uh, about uncertainty. And it was something I found challenging. So that's where it, it kind of came from. And I really wanted to take a broader perspective on the experience of uncertainty rather than just looking at specific instances of clinical uncertainty, which is what um, some of the previous qualitative work in this area has done. I, I wanted it to be a bit more open and led by the participants, which was why I chose interpretive phenomenological analysis or IPA, which is a qualitative methodology that's where you really want to get into the lived experience of your participants. How did they experience uncertainty? And you, the idea is that it's about getting into things in depth. So you have a smaller number of participants. So there was only five participants in this study, but we had interviews that lasted up to an hour. And you do very detailed analysis of the transcripts of those, of those interviews. I think that's a really nice summary and interestingly the journal as in the emj have been increasing the amount of qualitative work that we're publishing and rick and i have talked uh, about a few qualitative pieces of work and it's just nice to share a different methodology with our listeners who probably may not be familiar with that it's not one that i've i know an awful lot about either going back to some of the things that you touched upon I know, Rick, you picked out a really interesting quote that I think will tie up some of the the themes that Anna found from the paper. Yeah, the findings of this paper really resonated with me because I remember being a new consultant and I remember being very anxious. In fact, I even walked into work every day wondering if someone had referred me to the GMC (laughs) and discovered that I was actually incompetent. Uh, So one of the quotes really struck me. Uh, which was everybody's busy. So you ask somebody and they're like, yeah, yeah, you were fine. And I'm like, that's not helpful. And it suggested to me that there's a dissatisfaction with the feedback that we get. There's an uncertainty about our own performance sometimes. Yeah. And I think one of the things that you mentioned before was one of the unexpected findings. And I, I didn't expect there to be so much focus on uncertainty to do with performance. I expected it would be more to do with individual clinical instances of uncertainty. So that surprised me a little bit, but it was really prominent. And I think you're right, picking out that lack of feedback that really made that uncertainty 
much more difficult to manage and you know really perpetuated that feeling of anxiety and that there I think there is another quote there that shows that the the participants it did provoke that kind of anxiety and worry so one of the things I talk about in the in the implications is that I think we really need to create space for doctors I think at all levels but particularly those going through transitions and I think consultants are relatively neglected in that arena make space to have those reflective conversations which about uncertainties which include good quality feedback and I know that it can be really difficult particularly in the current climate to try and make space and time for that but I think it's really really important. The other theme that I wanted to pick up about was, so we mentioned about transition and performance as a source of uncertainty. We mentioned about uncertainty around decision making and that sharing of uncertainty and asking for help. I think what I struggle with now, and what I really worry about, you know, I'm a year and a bit off being a consultant. So this hugely um, resonates with me, this paper is how can you be a consultant and share your uncertainty in a in a safe way without feeling that you're not undermining your own title i guess so what worries me is that you know day 1 of being a consultant and i'm like i have no, still have no idea what i'm doing but i've got to put that persona on of trying to know what i'm doing I, I think that was the the participants, that was a, a theme with the majority of them as well, that how, how do you balance that? And I think one of the things that I wanted to put in the paper, but I couldn't quite fit it in with the with the word limit was this this idea of how you frame uncertainty in a way that is acceptable, both to patients. And I think we get really good at in emergency medicine at doing that with patients of, you know, we're not quite sure what's going on with you, but, you know, we know it's nothing serious. We're quite good at explaining that to patients, but we're not, perhaps not so good at doing that with our with our colleagues. And I think that being confident that you don't know things, it sounds really weird, but confidently saying, I don't know about this, so I'm going to ask this person or we're going to do this. I think that it still maintains your credibility. And I think actually people really appreciate that honesty. And one of the other things that one of the participants talked about was they really liked it when they had been a registrar and their consultants would talk through their reasoning. And so they could see the uncertainty and how they managed it rather than the people who would just do it all internally and come out with an answer because they would feel as if oh okay there is a right answer and you just have to learn more experience more and you'll know that answer that you come out with because they don't see all that internal processing and and thinking and that's one of the other things I talk about in the paper that I think as senior clinicians that thinking aloud and showing our working to our junior colleagues when they come to us with you know with problems showing that working is is really important to make that saying I don't know more acceptable. Yeah, absolutely. And I think 
this paper really highlighted to me and I noticed on our social media as well, it really got a lot of people talking about this. And I think it probably highlighted to a lot of people that we need to be kind to ourselves in the sense of it's okay if you don't know everything as a consultant and you are allowed to ask for help, but you need to be having the skills for how to ask for help to show and role model that good behaviour. Yes. Um, One of the other surprising things I found was that people were getting to consultants and then having that realisation that actually I don't always have to have the answer. There's not one right way of doing things. There's often, you know, lots of different ways that you could approach things. And it makes me feel that, you know, we are in some ways failing people in medical training. If people get to consultanthood before they have that realisation, that doesn't feel right to me. It feels like that should be something that we're instilling in you know our undergraduates and then all the way through medical training but it feels like you always pass the buck you're like oh I don't know but I'm going to ask my SHO or I'm going to ask the registrar or I'm going to ask the consultant and then suddenly people get to consultants and they're like oh no who do I (laughs) who do I ask now it's been absolutely great talking to you Anna and before we let you leave is there any other questions you wanted to ask Rick at all No, I just wanted to say a massive thank you for sharing your insights with us. I'm in my 12th year as a consultant, so by no means a new consultant as the participants were in this study, but I still feel uncertainty. I guess I can confidently express that uncertainty now. One of the things that really strikes me about this on reflection is that this is a paper that I think we should show to all new consultants. It validates their feelings of uncertainty, which I'm sure all of us get. And we all need to learn to be confident in handling that uncertainty. And this amazing paper segues nicely into the last paper we've got for the podcast, which is about research priorities in emergency medicine, Rick. Yeah, so you may remember that in 2017, the Royal College of Emergency Medicine undertook a James Lind Alliance priority setting partnership exercise to set the top 10 research priorities for emergency medicine. Many of those research questions have now been answered, often with large grants, which is very nice to see. But it's been a long time since those priorities were set and they needed a refresh. So in this episode of the Emergency Medicine Journal, we've got a paper describing the process, led by Laura Cotty as the first author and Jason Smith, chair of the Arkham Research Committee, as the last author. They described the process that they went through to set the top 10 research priorities for emergency medicine in 2023. Now, it's well worth a read. I'm not going to go through all 10 priorities for you, but I'll go through the top three. The first one is how can care for mental health patients be optimised in the emergency department? Really important question. The second one is in older, frail patients with injury, how can assessment experience be optimised? And a third is, what's the optimal management strategy for patients taking antiplatelets and anticoagulants who sustain head injuries? I think you'll agree that they're all really important research questions for us to answer. Sources of uncertainty in our everyday practice. And hopefully, by articulating these top priorities, 
you, the listener, and others like you will go on and get the grants that are going to answer those research questions and give us more certainty in our practice going forward. Sarah, what did you think? Yeah, it's really nice to see those articulated down and on a piece of paper. It it always feels a bit more real when it's on a piece of paper. And I think the top one being about mental health is so, so important, particularly after, you know, COVID-19. And we've seen definitely an increase in mental health patients who are seeking support and are having a difficult time coming to the department. And we just need to get that better for them. Absolutely. So check the article out online so you can see the full top 10 priorities. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the podcast. I think it's been such a fantastic issue of the Emergency Medicine Journal with loads of pearls of wisdom. But for now, from me, take care. And it's goodbye from me. See you next time.